Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. On today's show, Parks and Recreation and Good Girls star, Retta. The actress talks about her perspective on the multiple pandemics our country finds itself in. When George Floyd was killed, I had a feeling of such hopelessness and... It was just, it was, it was heavy. Like, because I, because, because of quarantine, you know, I was watching a lot of news in the mornings and, and then, you know, keep, I would keep MSNBC or CNN on during the day. And it was just constantly hearing these things, learning how much this country doesn't love, respect, care about Black people. And then knowing that, minorities were disproportionately affected by COVID and it's already like, oh fuck, we're all home and we're all in this together. And then you're like, some of us are in it more. Getting confused for her Parks and Rec character, Donna, by fans. I don't know why it bugs me so much, but it's mostly in social media that it drives me crazy because I know it's not like you happen upon my face and you're like, oh, look, it's Donna. No, you're literally writing to me to say, Donna, I have this, that, the other thing I'd like you to do. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say treat yourself to your friend for their birthday because one, you called me Donna. And dressing for red carpets as a plus size person in Hollywood. I do appreciate having one of a kind items, but sometimes I just want to shop you know, I don't want it to be like, we only have five days to get this looks together for this thing. I want to, I want somebody to be able to bring a fucking dress rack to my house and then we just pick and it's done in a night. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up. <laughs> Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, another week. How you doing? I'm tired. I'm good. I'm going to keep this brief. Um, Evan knows the backstory on why I'm exhausted. I like a crazy person every year for the charity Extra Life, which is a video game based charity to support sick kids in children's hospitals. Um, they encourage you to play video games for 24 hours straight on game day to raise money for sick kids. And I do it all the time. I only made it 22 hours this year before I oh passed out. But um, I managed to raise uh, $905 on my own, which was great. And my team raised uh, $1,149. 
and it was really awesome and really exciting. And the fundraising goes through, I think, the end of the year. So my link is still active. And so in the show notes today, if you're inclined, I'm going to include it. If you want to donate money to sick kids, please do. It's a charity that's really close to my heart. And I suffered for 22 hours playing video games the whole time for you. So... But it was great. I love doing it. I've done it every year for the last four or five years. And so I'm completely exhausted, but otherwise really excited about this episode. How are you, Evan? Well, I just want to say first, congratulations. That's Thank really, you. really major. I never played a video game for an hour. And so I imagine 22 hours is <laughs> exhausting. I'm exhausted just, just imagining it. So congratulations. Thank you. I am good. I am also very excited about today's episode. I'm going to skip sort of the banter about what I did this weekend because I think it is more important and our time is better spent turning things over to our guest um, who has become a viral sensation over the last couple of weeks and thankfully so because he really is a tremendous resource um, of information for both people that want to know more about the 2020 election process but also people that want to know more about how they can become more informed citizens in terms of making smarter decisions about how we vote and why we vote. But I also am really honored to call him a friend who I've known for a very long time and who I have long relied on um he is the kind of friend that you text with a question about why is this senate seat going this way or just you know any question that i have i go to him so without any further ado i just want to welcome to the podcast welcome to shut up evan the fabulous brian derrick brian thank you so much how are you hi evan thanks for having me on um i'm super super excited and i'm feeling great in biden's america biden's america have you slept I have slept last night was the first night that I went to bed. I still set an alarm, but it was for more than two hours from when I was going to sleep. So that was a huge improvement for me. Wonderful. I'm very glad to hear that. I am curious, every time that I see you on Instagram, by your stories or on the feed, you're constantly on the go, quite literally. I think that's like one of the things I think about when I think about your stories is either a whiteboard, you in front of a whiteboard with a tie, or is you have a tie? Never a tie. No, you in front of a whiteboard with a button down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you on the go in like a suburban neighborhood. Um, so f- tell me this. It's like, w- what's the idea behind that? Why are you always in motion? So I think that both of those things kind of came about really naturally. I moved for the, the 2020 election to go work on a campaign in a Trump district and um started kind of doing these walk and talks to to explain to people things that were going on obviously it really was feeling at the time like the world was turning upside down every two weeks and there there was just a, a a fire hose of information coming to people and so i wanted to help break things down um it also was evolving at the same time as the pandemic and so i was stuck at home a lot and um was working remote and so i would go for these walks anyway just to get outside of my house i was working and and sleeping in the same room so then i just pointed a camera at myself and uh and to 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 share the information that i was seeing with 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 people and it, it just kind of evolved that way but movement's always part of campaigning, so. No, I love it. And I think it's such a, it's a, such a simple but very specific thing that I now, I literally associate walking and talking with a camera with you, which I mean, how wonderful. <laughs> um, you have become somewhat of a viral sensation, as I mentioned, over the last couple of weeks, but particularly in the last week in the lead up to the election. Uh, one of the byproducts of that being your new friend and follower, Ryan Reynolds, who posted to his 36 million followers, encouraging them to follow you. What is that like to see the work that you have made your life's work 
being recognized by so many people and particularly those people who have the power to really amplify your voice and reach audiences who might not necessarily have previously received the message? I mean, it's definitely exciting. Um, I don't feel like I have changed very much what I'm doing. Um, And I really have you to thank for this entire thing, because I don't know if you even remember or realize this, but my very first whiteboard video was um, in response to a text that you sent me asking about delegates in the primary. So we were going through the presidential primary. There were 24 candidates running. Everyone was like, why are there thousands of delegates? Who is getting them and how and from where? And it's a really complicated process. So I, in my explanation to you of delegates, got a whiteboard, mapped it all out, and that's how the whiteboard stories were born. So I really have you to thank for this whole thing. Wow. Um, how fantastic. What is it like, though, to see people like Ryan Reynolds and that have these tremendous amount of followers amplifying um, these lessons that, let, let it be known, these kind of lessons that you were doing at some point really just to reach out to your friends. This wasn't, that's, I think, something that's so critical to people's understanding of you and your story is it's like, you are not doing this for virality. Virality is a great byproduct of what you're doing because the information reaches more people. But but in the beginning, you were doing this because you really have a passion for disseminating information to people so that they have, they are informed about the government, politics, how these systems in our country work. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that is why, um, like, leveraging platforms like, like Ryan Reynolds, um, Ben Platt has been hugely helpful um, in, in getting the word out. Like, they're able to reach people that would never um, have come across my content or maybe not would not have been interested in, in following me because it was political specifically. Um, but seeing it through a different channel, seeing it through a different lens, somebody that they know felt more comfortable doing so. Um, and yeah, I, I, I really just want to help people overcome the hurdles and, and break down barriers between them and feeling like they can be um, an agent of power and, and, ha- and, and make a difference in our system because that is, if you know how to work it, that is how it's designed. Um, and we just need to widen the, the paths and, and include more people in, in that system to, of knowing how, how it works, essentially. So tell me what exactly it means to be a campaign strategist. My background is actually originally in, in nonprofits, but I decided after the 2016 election to try to jump in full-time. I've, I've always been politically minded, but to full-time campaigning. Um, and so I worked on Senator Gillibrand's presidential campaign. I recently worked on um, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill's campaign. Um, and a, a lot of what I do is fundraising. That's the, the video, the first video that I, that I created that went viral was kind of a breakdown of the um, financial status of all of the Senate candidates that were running to flip Senate seats this, this cycle. Um, and so I, I, as a campaign strategist, really just want to help awesome candidates that I believe in, um, get their message out to people, find the volunteers and resources that they need in order to put them in office so that they can start kicking ass and making better decisions than the people who are there right now. Well said. Um, so obviously we just had this election. I think you know a little bit about it, maybe a lot of bit about it. Um, what would you say are some of your biggest takeaways from not the 2020 election, but how the election played out over the course of the five days that seemed like 84 years? 
Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that my message to people throughout was to trust the process. Um, our democracy has been around the block and I think is capable of withstanding a lot more than people realize. And its power comes from us all believing in it. So I think that that was an important part of this was for people to say like, we will count every vote and we will have the president who, um, who receives the, the, the most votes via the, the electoral college. But, um, and so th that has been my message for the last five days. As far as what I'm taking away from it, I think that the anxiety definitely wore people down over the last week and which is understandable, but had we walked away on election night at 11 p.m. or midnight with the results that we have right now, like it was a big win. And I think that the drawing out of that process and the slow churning, um, as of this recording, it looks like Joe Biden is going to win 306 electoral votes, which Donald Trump in 2016 referred to as a landslide. This is a big victory. And our country is taking uh, a turn and headed in, in a new and better direction. And people should be thrilled about that. So what I'm taking away is to not let the, um, the slow burn prevent us from seeing the light because the light is there. It is strong. We have a majority in the House. We could potentially end up with a majority in the Senate. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be leading the way for the next four years. Mm, you're so articulate. Um, you called the election on your Instagram on November 5th, two days before the official 270 electoral votes had come in. You cited Decision Desk HQ. What do you make of the 48 hours between Decision Desk HQ calling it and any other media outlet? I know you mentioned online that you thought it might have been networks wanting to further propel ratings. Um, but why do you, it's like 48 hours is a large gap. So I guess two parts is like, what gave you the confidence to trust that news source? And why do you think that we had to wait longer than perhaps was necessary? I think, I mean, I, I trust Decision Desk. I think that they are extremely data-driven and um, not having a televised platform have some different incentives in, in the calls that they're making. In my opinion, I think that there were different guidelines used by the networks. And if you listen to what they said, I think that it was by their own admission that they were being extra cautious and that they wanted there to be like beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I found that frustrating because like I said before, I think that our democracy is very durable and no one should play by special rules. And that includes Donald Trump. And so when the math said that um, Joe Biden was going to be president, that was when the, the race should be called um, as it has been for the, the history of networks making projections in, in, in elections. And I want to clarify and make, and, and, and make sure that people understand that doesn't mean that every vote is not going to be counted. Every vote will always be counted, but there comes a point where mathematically you can calculate who is going to be the winner. And I think that networks waited beyond that point this year um, which created two celebrations, <laughs> mm. um, at least if you were following my Instagram. Yes, 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 yes. And speaking of mathematicians, um, there have been a lot of uh, other celebrities that have come out of uh, this 
last five days. Uh, not new celebrities. I mean, I feel like Steve Kornacki, for instance, if you remember the 2016 election, we sort of had this same sort of like thirst cycle happen before. You know, everything is a flat. Is it, everything is a flat surf. Everything is a flat. Everything. What is it? Everything is a Everything's sphere. a circle. Everything. Everything's a circle. Whatever. Everything. Everything. <laughs> happened. What? Time is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle. Um, but so, you know, we have Steve Kornacki, Jacob Soboroff, John King. It seems to be low-hanging fruit by way of originality, and yet gay Twitter and even straight Twitter want to be in on the thirst. Um, I'm sure you have been on the receiving end of some thirst. You are a very good-looking gentleman. What is your perception of the way in which we collectively seem to amidst, I think a part of it is, you know, our brains have become, you know, instant oatmeal. But in addition to that, there's just thirst is fun. It's fun to thirst. It's fun to collectively thirst. What do you think it is about our sudden, uh, especially with Kornacki, this sudden love of pun? Is it pundits? Is that the term? Um, I, I've heard them called uh, chart throbs. Ooh, wow. Ooh, I like okay. that. That's good. Um, I think that I think that it's a few things. If you're staring at your television and somebody is on it for long enough, you're gonna have some opinions about them. And Steve Kornacki is a great is a great person, I think. Um, and so naturally, people are are gonna be drawn to that. I also think that it's um attract it's an attractive quality in someone to be really passionate about what they do, to be enthusiastic about something. Um, and these data people like. Uh, like the, the Steve Kornackis of the world are, you can tell, extremely knowledgeable and passionate about what they're doing. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can speak to the gay Twitter aspect of it, but I have definitely seen my fair share of Kornacki thirst going around. Um, and it, it does seem like it's a four-year cycle. Yes. Speaking of which, many people are probably curious, I'm sure. Are you single? I am single. Are you yeah. on the, well, I mean, obviously <laughs> coronavirus, but are you on the mingle? <laughs> I'm open. I'm open to being on the mingle. Okay. Just to be clear, sure. on the mingle does not mean Christian mingle necessarily. I mean, maybe no. you are on Christian mingle, but just, no, you are not. We are fellow Jews. We are fellow A Jews. call yes. full of Jews. We're all Jews here. Excellent. Yeah. We, uh, Bren, we've been to many a Seder, too. Or not many a Seder. We've been to many uh, Shabbat together. Shabbat. We should do a Seder. Um, okay, so a couple more questions. So we have these two Senate seats that remain up for grabs, and we'll go to January runoffs. Both are taking place in Georgia with Democrat John Ossoff facing off against David Perdue and Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock facing off against Kelly Loeffler. Am I saying that right? Leffler. Leffler, whatever. Don't even yeah. know her name. What yeah. are some actionable things that non-Georgia residents listening to this podcast can do in the next two months? Yeah, absolutely. So as somebody who, who does campaign finance, the first thing that I'm always going to say, if you're not able to be there in person, is, is to donate. Um, there are estimates that these two races could cost $200 million between now and January. Um, and so it's important when Republicans are telling lies about our candidates and putting up these attack ads that they're able to respond. So um, donating is one thing. Also, there's going to be a massive mobilization via phone banking and text banking. Um, and so you can sign up for that on if you go to mobilize.us, you can sign up to phone bank or text bank for either candidate. And the last thing that I would want to plug is an app called Outvote, um, which is where you can actually upload the contacts from your phone and it will tell you 
which of those people might be registered to vote um, by state. So if you have a friend from high school that you haven't talked to in a million years or that person from college that moved away and you lost touch with, they might live in Georgia, they could be Atlanta-based, and um, this app helps you identify them and get a message to them that says like, hey, are you registered to vote? Do you know about this election coming up? And you can follow up with them after to see if, in fact, they did cast their ballot. Fabulous. So two last questions. One, I know you're not a soothsayer, but to what degree of confidence do you think we, and when I say we, I'm speak. I guess, are you apolitical? Are you allowed, you're allowed to be politically affiliated? Yeah, you. I'm I'm opposed to being apolitical. Okay. I will always be partisan. <laughs> okay, fair. So uh, how confident are you that the Democrats uh, have a shot at taking these two Senate seats into our possession and therefore flipping the Senate? Um, well, I also want to point out that there are two other Senate races that have not been called yet. Um, so in Alaska, we are waiting on the results of that. They haven't, um, because of weird rules that I won't, get into right now they're going to start counting uh their mail-in ballots on two on tuesday uh, november 10th um and in north carolina we're waiting on uh the ballots to come in that were postmarked by election day but have not been received yet so neither of those two races potentially al gross potentially cal cunningham have officially been called um, assuming we do not win either one of those, we would need to win both Georgia seats in order to have 50 seats in the Senate and have Vice President Kamala Harris cast a tie-breaking vote in Democrats' favor. I love the way that sounds. <laughs> Absolutely. I would look forward to it every time. I will definitely frame it as both Senate seats will be an uphill battle for Democrats, and I think that it will take historic mobilization um, of which we are capable in order to win those seats. They're likely to go hand in hand. Um, it's probably whoever wins gets both uh, because not too many people will be splitting their ticket. But um, I think that uh, obviously Georgia is, is turning blue for, for Joe. And so the votes are there. And it's really going to be about who gets their, uh, their people to the polls and has the best ground game to do that. Um, and that takes a massive effort and all, all eyes are going to be on Georgia for the next two months. So mm -hmm. we need every, every person listening to this to, to help us out. Wonderful. Okay. So my last question, there seems to be from what I've read so far, I don't have statistics in front of me, an increase in the amount of LGBTQ plus people who voted for Trump in the 2020 election versus the 2016 election. And I think for many people listening, like myself, that just seems, how can that be? Can you explain from your perspective why you think that something about Trump is resonating with a faction of the LGBTQ plus community and making them feel like they have a candidate in Trump that will care about them, protect them, um, make their lives better. Because I think for the majority of the people listening, it just, I, I guess it's like what I'm saying is, can you help make it make sense? Yeah. I first would take issue with the premise because I have seen the articles about like 25%, 30%, something like that, um, supporting Trump. That is, that is taken from exit polling, which I think is in general suspect. Think about the polling that we saw before the election and, and the outcome that we are, we have right now, but even more so this year, because 
exit polling had to be done as a combination of in-person. Ordinarily with exit polling, you would stand outside of a polling place, talk to people as they left after they voted. Because 70%, I'm like, I'm estimating, of Democrats voted by mail. There's an over-representation of Republicans in the exit polling that would skew results. They tried to supplement that with phone calls, but like, honestly, who on this who, who listening to this answered the phone yeah. to, and, and, and talked to them. No so I, I'm really taking issue with the data, first of all. As far as how any LGBT person at all, regardless of the, the scope of, of the community's vote, um, could support Donald Trump, I think that the main thing that he taps into is rage. Like, if you listen to, to Trump supporters, there is an undercurrent of this anger at things changing, things changing too quickly, um, at feeling displaced. And so, yeah, again, I'm really having to, to step outside of myself here because this feels like the antithesis of, of what and who I am. But um, I can see, I guess, if people connected to that anger for, for whatever purpose, um, it's an extremely strong trigger to be, to be pushing in people um, and it can be really persuasive when you're trying to, to get someone to behave in a way that's beneficial to you, aka Trump. Before we let you go, Matt, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I think I am. Uh, I, Brian, thank you. I think that a lot of with this election, especially as a Jew and as a queer person, it, it, it's a lot of it is scary and Trump has represented a lot of that fear. For, for those kinds of sects of people and beyond, of course. And someone like you on the internet who provides clear data, information, guidance, and strength to people who feel so lost has been invaluable just in the few days because I hadn't seen your stuff before Evan brought it to me and now I am obsessed. Like, I just thank you for all that you've done to uh, bring a, a level of sense back to people because we all feel a little like our brains are putting at this point and you make it so clear, concise, and easy to comprehend and also energizing to want to participate because the job is just beginning. We're not even close to done yet. Like we got, They got elected, but there's still a lot of work to do. And so thank you for that. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that. The way that I see it, if you want things to change, there are only two options, work harder or give up. Yeah. Those, because everything that has come before has not been enough. If things are not the way that you want them to be right now, nothing that has been done up until now has been enough to make it that way. And so we need to work harder, smarter, et cetera, in order to get it there. Um, or, or we shouldn't even be bothering. But Everybody has, has hard days. As long as you're having more days where you believe and, and you're working really hard than days where you feel like giving up, then you're, I think, doing something right. Well said. And I just, I also want to give you props for not just the message, but how you deliver it. Because I think that you have chosen Instagram and Instagram stories and the whiteboard. And, and it's not just what you're presenting. It's how you're presenting it. Because I think it's, I'm going to pull on another thing that I don't even, it's like if Muhammad won't come to the mountain, right? The mountain, something, you know. Bring the mountain to Muhammad. <laughs> yes. And I feel like what you're doing is it's like you're going to the place where people are, which is like we're all scrolling through Instagram all fucking day. We're all zombies to Instagram. And so you're taking the information and putting it where we already are versus, you know, I have to put on the news. It's an act I have to do that is atypical to my everyday existence. 
And I think that you are bringing it to us and bringing it about in such a way and really speaking in a way that especially I think for young people, for gay people, for Jewish people, for disenfranchised people that feel like this, all of this is not for them. I feel like you are inviting us in and making it um, succinct and clear. And and not only that, sorry, one last thing I just want to say is like your enthusiasm for this process, your belief in the goodness of, of, of democracy and for, as you mentioned, these systems the, that they will persevere that like that. I just feel like you are really a champion for for good, for the idea that good can prevail as we saw take place on Thursday and or Saturday, depending on uh, your barometer. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I texted this to you, but it just so it's, you know, on the record, I just, I have so much respect and admiration for you. And on top of it all, that you are such a good friend um, is just the cherry on top. So I just want to thank you on behalf of anyone listening or anyone who has tuned into any of your myriad updates over the last five days. Thank you. How do you blush on a podcast? I don't know how that works. <laughs> they can feel it. They'll know. Yeah. That that actually, that really does, that means a lot to me, Evan, and, and I appreciate it. I, I feel really blessed that uh, the work that I love to do um, can be helpful to people, um, and whether that's their, their mental health or helping them get involved, um, regardless, I am, I, I, I genuinely feel, feel truly lucky to, to have that platform to be able to do that and that people trust me to to listen to now and again yeah and gentlemen as he stated earlier he is single i can't <laughs> confirm that the Get dms are it. open but i'm imagining um and if you aren't already please follow brian derrick on instagram i expect over the next couple of months he is going to continue to be an important research and well beyond that um but without any further ado another subject uh worth zeroing in on is today's guest she yes. is fabulous she is sensational she is so fucking funny and i'm so glad we have her here so we are going to turn things over to our interview with the great and powerful retta let's do it this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. She is the current star of NBC's Good Girls, whose past television credits include Bravo's Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and NBC's Parks and Recreation, where she played the iconic part of Donna Meagle for seven seasons opposite Amy Poehler and Aubrey Plaza. In 1999, she became the first winner of Comedy Central's Laugh Riot's stand-up competition before becoming a popular fixture touring on the college stand-up circuit. Her television credits include appearances on Moesha, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Kroll Show, Drunk History, Key and Peele, and Big Mouth. 
On the big screen, she has appeared in films, including Slackers, Other People, To the Bone, and Father Figures. She currently co-hosts the podcast And Nothing Less with actress Rosario Dawson, and her book of essays, So Close to Being the Shit Y'all Don't Even Know, was published in 2018 via St. Martin's Press. I just reread it, and I can confirm it is both poignant and hilarious. She is incisive, witty as fuck, gorgeous, perceptive, and truly one of my absolute favorite people to follow on Instagram. She is the great and powerful Retta. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) How are you today? I'm good. I'm relatively rested. I've had my coffee. Otherwise, this would not have happened. So I'm good. I'm very glad to have you here, and I'm really glad to hear that you're caffeinated, because I think that's, you know, very important. <laughs> I want to start off by recounting one of my favorite Retta moments. It comes from a 2000 appearance on Premium Blend, and it was recounted in a 2017 interview with Conan. And it goes like this. You tell the story of how when you first moved to LA, you were stopped at a traffic light, and an older couple pulled up next to you. I mean, now keep in mind, all they can hear is the bass, and they see me. passenger side she looks across at me and she's like it's that rap music again that's when I let down my power windows good. And I'm curious about that moment because you were able to shift the power from that couple in the car next to you and get a whole room full of people to laugh with you at them. It's such an incredible feat. And I just wonder what that moment felt like in 2000. That was my closer for years. So I will give you the true details of that bit. It happened in North Carolina when I first started doing comedy Uh, I was living in North Carolina and it happened in North Carolina and it wasn't an older couple. It was a woman and her little kid in the car. And, you know, we're at a light and, and she pulls up and she was looking at me like, really? And I was like, yeah, bitch, really? (laughs) This is how I don't have road rage because otherwise I would want to cut your ass. I kind of normally didn't pay attention um, I tend to to sing very loud when I'm in my car because I hate driving. I hate driving and I, I particularly hate traffic. I'm usually kind of just to myself. I don't really note other people unless they actively like yell out their window at me or whatever. And oftentimes it is hip hop, but when I'm looking not to cut anybody, Chances are it's classical. Love that. I didn't say bitch out loud because there was a kid in the car, but I thought it. (laughs) I mean, it was one of those moments where it's like, all right, you know what they say about assuming. (laughs) You make the ass out of you and me. Okay. Exactly. So inspired by that story, what has your musical vibe been over quarantine? What are the kind of things that you've been listening to over the past couple of months? Actually, it's mostly 80s and 90s. I am mostly 80s because I'm so anxiety ridden ridden and and stressed this quarantine and you know election year mm. I I think I'm I'm trying to 
hold on to when things were were simple and I really didn't have any worries, i.e. the 80s and 90s. <laughs> so it takes me back to a time when mommy didn't cry herself to sleep. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, before we back it up a bit, I am curious to know, and, you know, talking about the coronavirus, you know, how this last six months have affected you emotionally. The third season of your show, Good Girls, was cut short due to the pandemic. And of course, as chronicled on your Instagram, you've been staying home throughout this pandemic, sensibly, as many people should and are not. And then on top of it all, there's the racial unrest that's been spurred by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and more. And then there's the general buffoonery of the person in the White House. So how has all of this affected your spirit? Oh, I, I wake up with a, like a knot in my stomach. I, 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 I have waves of it. Ahmaud Arbery, I, I, Ahmaud's killing, you know, gave me, I was sad about it. When George Floyd was killed, I had a feeling of such hopelessness. And it was just, it was, it was heavy. Like, because, I, because, because of quarantine, you know, I was watching a lot of news, you know, I was on in the mornings and, and then, you know, keep, I would keep MSNBC or CNN on during the day. And it was just constantly hearing these things about, you know, learning how much this country doesn't love, respect, care about black people. And then knowing that, minorities were disproportionately affected by COVID and it's already like, oh fuck, we're all home and we're all in this together. And then you're like, some of us are in it more, you know? So it was like, it was just so, so heavy and it was hard. It was really hard. And then you get those people on, you know, I was always on social media as well. Like my, literally, I think the only time I wasn't on social media was when I was sleeping and that was bad as well. Because, you know, I would say what I felt and then people who didn't agree with me, who, you know, were like, well, what was he doing? You know, those people would Mm. say things. And I was like, bitch, if you don't get the fuck out of my DM. So then I spent my days like angry and trying to make points. And then I was like, you know what? I then, you know, and I always, I always pride myself on my itchy block finger. And I finally was like, yeah, just let it go. Just block, 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 block. And then I'd have people uh, like commenting shit that was so off the wall. I don't know if you saw the thing where the one girl was telling me about how cows are, um, it was right in the heat of George Floyd. And she was like, one, she told me not to, drink dairy because cows are molested by <laughs> dairy farmers. And I was like, bitch, are you trying to die right now? <laughs> it was a whole thing. And so then I posted it. You know, I was, I was releasing my anger and I posted it into my stories. And she was like, I expected better from you. And I was like, bitch, you don't know me. What are you, you, there is nothing to expect from me when you don't know me. I mean, people were bringing me to a place where I, and so I had to cut off news. So I don't watch the news. I haven't watched the news in months. I have a, you know, a girlfriend uh, text group that if anything is important, they'll, it's going to get shared in that group. So, you know, when masks were mandated, when 
leaving the house, you know, when there were like no uh, gatherings with more than six people, all that stuff came in through text. So I got all the information I needed and I wasn't going anywhere anyway. So I wasn't really pressed to know what it was like outside. Now I'm a little bit better, but it was, it was dark times, my friend. So I want to go back to your early life a bit. Growing up, when did you first realize that you had the funny gene? Um, I guess it was in school, although my brother and I used to try to make my mom laugh by just being silly, but it was, I think it was when I was in school and you, you see that people laugh at what you say. And so then I guess I started trying to actively be funny as opposed to the natural humor that I possess. When did you begin writing jokes? Like when did that become a part of your, your career path? Oh, I, um, I started the stand-up career in 96. Yeah, in, in 96, I started doing stand-up in North Carolina. I started at Charlie Goodnights, and I would do open mics there, and, and then got to the point where people would book me at small shows. And so I did a lot of shows near the campus of Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill. It was... Uh, while I was working, doing chemistry at Glaxo Pharmaceuticals, at night I would do open mics. Yeah, I want to talk about that because you have such an interesting trajectory. So you graduated from Duke University, where you were pre-med and graduated with a degree in sociology. Then you graduated and worked for a period, as you just said, as a chemist. So how do you go from that to becoming this huge Hollywood star? Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was, I was young when I decided to change paths. So what I did was I had decided that I wanted to be a star of a sitcom. And so, because I, I loved comedy. I loved comedy shows. So I watched a lot of sitcoms and I noted, I have an empirical mind and I, I feel like I'm always trying to equalize stuff and figure out stuff. And if something is a success one way, you try to recreate that same success, whatever it is, whether it be doing chemical reactions, whether it be a math problem. And so I noticed that comedies were often headed or, or, you know, the leads of comedies tended to be people who used to do stand up. So I was like, okay, well that, that is generally a path that works. I didn't know that there were a billion comics in Hollywood trying to do the same thing. I just noticed that the shows that I watched tended to be led by comedians. So I decided I will do stand-up. Someone will see me. I'll get my TV show. And so that's why I started doing stand-up. I love that. And lo and behold, right? I mean, here we are. So let's talk about Parks and Rec. But before we do, I have a question. So I often think about this a lot because I'm a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Sarah Michelle Gellar fan. And I think about how much of Sarah Michelle Gellar's career will, for the rest of her life, be looked at through the lens of Buffy. You know, a lot of people see her as Buffy. And if she ever does an interview, as she has done with me, we're going to talk about Buffy. And I imagine similarly with you, when you're a part of something as iconic as Parks and Rec, I know fans approach you all the time on the street and give you those one-liners as though you've never heard them before. Does it, is it taxing to sort of always have this association with something, even if you do love it? I'm not saying you don't love it, but I'm just saying, is it, is it, what is that like to have a body of work that will follow you for the rest of your life? 
I love that people love the show. I love that people love Donna Meagle. I love that it has informed people and that the character has given some people some self-esteem or, or something to emulate in their life. What I don't love is when people just call me Donna. <laughs> it, I, I know that some people do it by accident. If, if I'm out and someone happens to start talking to me and they're like, Donna, and I, I get that moment, but when, we're, when you're on social media and you follow me and you know my name, don't refer to me as Donna as if you have no idea that that's not who I am. You know what I mean? Totally. And now I'm starting to get it with Ruby from Good Girls, um, people just calling me Ruby. And I'm like, really? The laziness. I mean, you clicked on unforgettable. You know it's Retta. So also, it, it's not like you have a forgettable name to begin with. So it's like, hello, hello. I don't know why it bugs me so much, but it's mostly in social media that it drives me crazy because I know it's not like you happen upon my face and you're like, oh, look, it's Donna. No, you're literally writing to me to say, Donna, I have this, that, the other thing I'd like you to do. Yeah, no, I'm not going to say treat yourself to your friend for their birthday because one, you called me Donna. Yeah, <laughs> it's a deal breaker. Now, rather basic question, but if the show does come on these days and you have the television on, would you watch it? Oh, I, sometimes I watch it. For a little while, it was, you know, I, I cycle through go-to-bed shows mm. and for a well, Parks and Rec was, was one of them. You know, I like noticing things that I didn't notice before, just little things every once in a while. And it's soothing because I, because I know it, you know what I mean? Just yeah. like Grace, I've watched it so many times, like I know it, so it kind of soothes me and, I, and put, lets me go to sleep. It's so funny you mentioned go-to-bed shows because I, I know that feeling so distinctly. I have so many of them. What is your current go-to-bed show? Now it's pretty much like late night with Seth. I usually, I DVR, I DVR all of them. I pay attention for the opening monologue. And then if I stay awake for the rest of it, then I'll, I'll watch it. But usually I set my TV timer and start to drift off, drift off after a closer look. Mm. <laughs> I feel that. So I've always wanted to ask you about the opening credits. So on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm gonna make another Buffy comparison. <laughs> there was a character named Tara. I know where the mm. I mean, there was a character on Buffy in season four who joined the cast named Tara, and she did not pop up in the opening credits until season six when her character died. They put her in the opening credits for the episode in which she died. Spoiler alert for anyone that doesn't know. And this makes me think about your character on the show and your presence on that show. You were on the show from the very beginning. You became, correct me if I'm wrong, you became a cast member in season three officially, and then were put into the opening credits in season six. This bothers me. It's always bothered me. And I'm just curious, what's the deal with that? I have no idea. And it was the kind of thing where it does bug you and you don't, there's different, th I think it's, one, I think it's contractual. It's a contractual thing. And so if it wasn't in your contract before, then it's not something they have to do. And so because I wasn't in the opening in the beginning, Obviously, you know, I was, I was like a co-star first season, guest star second season, regular third season. And when there's a big cast like that, cast of 10, 
generally they don't like to put that many faces in their opening. But I honestly, I never found out. And I, I don't know if it was the kind of thing I didn't want to get my feelings hurt, even though my feelings were hurt. And, and so when they did put us in, it was the kind of thing where there was so much fan questioning, like what took so long that I was like, I, I didn't let myself worry about it anymore. I was like, other people are worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, um, yeah. There's always these little things in Hollywood where you're like, really? But you know what? It was like, I get to do what I want to do. And so that part outweighs all the little things you feel throughout your career. So, you know, I, I got to be on the show and I got to work with people that I love and and then I got a break in between seasons and I got to travel. So it was, it was a fair uh, trade-off. Tell me about the, you know, going from season one to season two of that show, because I was reading an old interview that you did about the show and some of the fears in season one that the show would not be picked up. And then the show, lo and behold, was picked up and became this massive hit. But what was the difference between filming in season one when you don't know the fate of the show? You don't know how it's going to be perceived. You don't know if it's going to find an audience. Then you come into film season two and it's like, okay, not only are people watching the show, it's a hit. It's a hit hit. What's the difference? It was never a hit. Mm. The show was never a hit. We never knew at the end of a season if we were coming back. We, we literally would find out, I would find out on Twitter most of the time where people who are really like pressed about what's coming back. <laughs> and, and Wait, Twitter's oh, pressed? <laughs> so pressed. And um, so we never knew. Whenever we ended a season, we were like, we would say our goodbyes like... <laughs> It wasn't until season six that we found out season seven would be our last season. That was the only time we ever knew that we would be back. Huh. So one, it was never, it was never a hit. It became, it was very beloved by the people who liked it, but it was never a hit. So we never knew for sure. And then, and then Netflix is the thing, you know, Netflix and Hulu kind of is what, put it over top because people would talk about it and they'd be like, is it really that good? It's like, bitch, watch it. And then people would, <laughs> like, were obsessed. I literally got a message today from someone who just watched it for the first time for 45 days straight. And they're like, my life has changed. I don't know what I, where I, you know, it, because of, because of binging now, it becomes more and more popular. And so we get these new waves of obsessed fans because it's new to their hearts. Um, but yeah, we were, we were never sure what was coming. We never knew. So we were never like, you know, I'm on this hit show. I was, <laughs> I was that person that was like, I'm on TV, bitch. <laughs> but I was never that person that was like, you know, I'm a person red, <laughs> getting paid. I was not. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was not getting paid, but I was a. Don't you love when people discover these things, whether it be in quarantine or just in general, and then their perception is they've just discovered this gem, and it's like, well, we've been known about this for quite some time. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just funny, because, and it's funny in your case, too, because they're expressing this excitement to you. Oh, my God, Parks and Rec, and you're like, yeah, yep, yeah, that was, that was a thing. 
Now, I love the many details about Donna's life that are scattered throughout the series. I just wrote a few of them down when I was doing my research. So Donna has a condo in Seattle. She speaks fluent French. She came in ninth in Italy's Got Talent. Come on. Served on a NASCAR pit crew and most famously is cousins with Genuine. Let's talk about personal relationships. Who wants to start? Donna? I have several men in rotation. One's waiting for me out in the car. (laughs) Don't worry, I roll down the window. Did you have a favorite Donna factoid that was sort of sprinkled into the show? Well, Genuine, um, being cousins with Genuine was funny because it was something, one, that me and Aziz and Rashida laughed so hard about, particularly because it was introduced that he was my cousin, that Tom knew everything about him, and that Rashida was clueless as to Genuine, who Genuine was, when Rashida was the only one that actually new genuine like she was like i'm the one person who actually knows him so that always made us laugh because we would act like whatever and i was like i have never seen him up close and in person and then we had to do the the photos and so they took photos with him and you know photoshopped me into them and put them around the house so there's pictures of us together never met him And then he got invited to be on the show and was excited to play Donna's cousin. Like there was such a long cycle of him just being words on a page to actually showing up and being on the show. So I I, I did enjoy that a great deal. Yeah, that was such an ongoing bit that when he finally did show up, it just felt so earned. It It was so awesome. So Matt has a question for you that I'm gonna let him ask now. Thank you. So as Evan said earlier, Donna is iconic. She's this character over the course of seven seasons, evolved and got all of these different factoids, you know, and is this brilliant take charge, take no BS, badass character. And what I'm curious about is, is there any characteristic of Donna that you wish you had or that you wish you could incorporate into your life? And vice versa, is there anything from Retta that you brought to Donna that she might not have had otherwise? Well... I do appreciate her ability to draw, draw in them hoes. <laughs> I, I, you know, her thing, the fact that she dated firemen and I am obsessed. I'm not obsessed with firemen, but firemen are hard. Yeah. I hooked up with one fireman and I was like, Donna, I get it. Um, <laughs> but I do, I love her ability to say what she feels with no qualms, no, she has no fear. I I think people feel that I'm very much like Donna and I don't know that I'm so much like her because I don't think I'm as fearless as her. I I, I do believe in faking it till you make it. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, I, I, I like, I like to feel strong and fearless. And so I try to take on that persona until I can be that person. Yeah. But I have my, you know, my fears, my insecurities. And I, and I feel like she doesn't have, she's like inse- fucking insecurity. <laughs> so that's something that I wish was my, uh, a talent that I had. But I think the one thing that I did bring <laughs> to Donna is her alacrity in live tweeting. That was something that I used to do. And then Mike Short uh, decided to add it as a treat (laughs) for Donna. Amazing. 
I love your use of the word alacrity. That's like one of my favorite words. Can I tell you, I just had a moment of like, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I love that word. That's literally like the kind of word I would put into a thesaurus. It would come up in a thesaurus when I go and try and search another word. <laughs> so last Parks related question. You gave an interview with The Hollywood Reporter in 2017. It's a lovely profile that they did on you in which you said this, quote, I used to only go out for the receptionist, nurse, or the meter maid. You know what I mean? They were very limited things and the characters weren't fully developed characters necessarily. It was either the angry black woman or the girl with the snappy comebacks or whatever. And Parks allowed me to grow into a fully fleshed out character. I don't know how many other shows it would have happened to me on. End quote. Now, three years later, you're about to head into the fourth season of Good Girls, a, sh a show in which you not only play one of the leads, but play a fully fleshed out character that's allowed you to show off your range even more than Donna, in my opinion. Do you feel like the landscape has changed in terms of what is out there, in terms of the breadth of roles that are available? No, not too much. I just think I've gotten lucky. I had Mike Shore, who I feel is notorious for, for creating very colorful and interesting characters, which allowed people to see me, you know, even though I feel like it, it wasn't, it was a comedy, so it wasn't like this huge breadth of a character, but she had a lot of interesting things about her that seven years allowed an audience to see. And then because of that show, I ended up getting Girlfriend's Guide because Marty Noxon's daughter loved Donna, and when the show was ending, she was like, well, can you put her into your show? So I got a job because of Parks. And then Jenna Bands saw me as Donna. She saw me as Barbara and wrote Ruby with me in mind. So I got lucky with Mike Shore. I was noticed by Marty's daughter as a result of that. And then seeing me do both, Jenna gave me Ruby. So I got, I've been lucky that I've had three jobs in the last 12 years, but the spark was Parks. The spark was Parks. Um. <laughs> and it's great too that Good Girls has been on as long as it has because the character of Ruby, who I feel like was a really fleshed out character from the get-go, has had now three seasons to really develop even more. And so it's so exciting to see not only a great role for you, but one that you're able to really sink your teeth into. Yeah, it was. it's the kind of thing where when I read the pilot it kind of just settled in. I got it. Mm. I particularly got her, her love and need to protect her child. Um, <laughs> what's going on over there? There's a fly literally <laughs> in my face. It's like of all the places to be. Anyway, sorry. I, I, when, I, when I read the pilot, and, it's, and that's not always the case. It's kind of thing. Usually if I read a, a, a script, I've got to kind of figure out the character because I don't necessarily tend to get the great scripts. So when it came to reading the Good Girls pilot, I knew the love that she had for her child and the need to do whatever she needed to do to save her. I also understood the love of her husband, like it, with her husband. I. I it was just something that settled on me as soon as I read it. And I knew exactly how I wanted to play it. I knew that she, you know, she looks him in the eyes when she talks to him. I knew 
when she was being tender that she would be touching his face. Like it was, it was this kind of, and I don't know if it was necessarily so much that I just knew it or it's just, that's the kind of relationship I wanted, you know? And so that's what I was going to portray on, on camera. And then just having additional seasons, it just, it, the, the character just settles in you so much. It's so much easier to, uh, to, to portray what you already know this person to be. I want you to come back to bed. Well, I can't act like this didn't happen. So maybe we can just give it back then. What are you talking about? The kidney. Maybe we can return it. Yeah, okay, that's just crazy talk. What's now. crazy is that you can't even look at me. You know what? You lied to my face. I saved her life. It wasn't God or the church or any of those thoughts and prayers. It was me. You say you don't know who I am. Well, let me introduce myself. I'm the crazy-ass bitch that robbed a grocery store to save her child and protect her family. Your child and your family. I'm that bitch. Nice to meet you. But I think the, the, the challenge is when they, they, they do something out of character that you're used to seeing. It's what's interesting to the audience, but you feel like a, you're betraying the character by doing the thing you don't want them to do and that you would never think they would do, you know what I mean? Like talking to the FBI agent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm telling you, like, we would get scripts and I would, I would literally text Jenna and be like, Jenna, why, why? Because <laughs> like, it's good TV. <laughs> I love that. And hey, it means you're invested both as the actor and the viewer, which is like a really great position to be. Um, I want to talk about your Instagram. I feel like we can't not talk about your Instagram. It's just such an important presence on social media. I think that throughout all of this, I go on your Instagram every day and just, it makes me smile. I love to see, I feel like I'm your friend and I wish I was your friend, but it makes me feel like I'm a part of your life and I just love watching it. What inspired you to use the platform the way you do in such a conversational way and to really like let people into your life and, and your thoughts? I, I basically use social media and Instagram stories in particular as my roommate. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I do my morning coffee with my roommate. I think that's, I, you know, it's what I, I want to see mm -hmm. on Instagram. I don't always want to see people selling items or pushing items. And granted, you know, if somebody wants me to do an ad, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but I don't necessarily want to always see that and so i just i guess i'm just doing what i want to see like you know to, to to get a true glimpse not a reality show glimpse but a true glimpse into someone that you're interested in into their life their daily or whatever absolutely so you know you mentioned your morning coffee can you describe for me the perfect cup of coffee oh i mean it's you know Right now, it's Pete's Major Dickinson, yes. uh, 12 ounces, yes. with a generous pour of Hazelnut International Delight. Now, froth. Yes. I've moved into the froth game, and uh -huh. uh, there's no turning back. <laughs> but I've, I have, I've had to kind of figure it out because International Delight and uh, creamers of its ilk are not dairy. <laughs> and so they don't foam in the way mm. that 
dairy with its fat foams. So I've figured out I'm lactose intolerant. So I add 2% lactate just to get just enough fat so I can get the froth. So I get the nice thick on top and get the, the hazelnut at the bottom. It's, it, it makes me very, very happy. I love it. So always hazelnut creamer. Would you ever do hazelnut flavored coffee? I would, well, I would try, I don't, you know, I do, I do, uh, the K-cups. Yeah. I do Keurig. So I'm willing to try anything, but if, if I've got a day, I need to work with what I know, you know, (laughs) I'm not experimenting on a day that's busy. Yeah, I feel that. Now, one thing you and I go back and forth a lot about over DM is the stupidity of man. How many people display their brain worms so flagrantly on social media? Does it ever cease to amaze you how stupid some people are and their desire to put out said stupidness into the world? No, it doesn't. I'm always amazed. I, I'm always shocked. And I'm like, why haven't I learned? I mean, it's... It, it's just like the whole, the whole Trump becoming president. I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand it. And honestly, you, you know what, you know what taught me? What made me actually go, oh, I see how he got elected. Tiger King. Please mm, say more. I was like, oh, so this is what America is. I was living, you know, in, under this rock that had people who made sense in it. You know what I mean? Like I just, when he, when he was running, was he running for governor in Florida or where? Oh yeah. Or like mayor or something. And got like 8% of the votes. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) On what platform too? Like, I mean, Lord knows. That's when I was like, oh, that's how we got where we are. And the, the, the sheer idea of lawlessness, as if it had nothing to do, he had no reason, no reason whatsoever to, to, to follow law. Like when he would threaten, <laughs> threaten Carol Baskin in his show and, and shoot her head off, shoot the dummy. I was like... Not only that, but his, but his willingness to do that with cameras present, like yeah. no thought to the idea that not only is this illegal, but we're going to be captured in said illegal act. Yeah. It's, it's so strange. But you know, it's interesting you say that too, because it's like, I look at Carol Baskin now on Dancing with the Stars and, you know, we make all these jokes about Trump and, you know, this is this reality TV star that we allow to become our president. And to your point, it's like, I see us doing it all over again. Not to yeah. say Carol Baskin is going to be president, but the <laughs> idea that she's given a platform after all of this to, yeah. you know, dance on television and be beloved is just, it just shows you how, how willing we are to do this all over again. I don't, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but when I saw it, saw, you know, there was an, an announcement or whatever, and I was like, really? What is that? Is that ABC? Really ABC? Mm-hmm. You know, NBC got us where we are now for The Apprentice, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's ABC about to do? 
Yeah. And Lord knows CBS doesn't have their shit together. So (laughs) (laughs) with Leslie Moonves over there. So you recently launched this podcast and nothing less, which is a podcast dedicated to commemorating 100 years of the 19th amendment and women's constitutional right to vote. Where did the idea for this pod come from and how did you get involved? Well, I was approached. There is a committee, the WSCC, which I believe is the Women's Suffrage Centennial Committee, which is the members are, are members of Congress, women, the, some women, women of Congress on both sides of the aisle. And they, they set this up to ce- celebrate the centennial of the 19th Amendment, you know, which gave, I was going to say, which, which it, it was ratified 100 years ago. And so th- they had a ton of events and different things planned. And then COVID hit. And so they couldn't really do a lot of things. Like they're, they're doing some, and most of the stuff is virtual. But one of the things, well, two, there were two podcasts that were planned. And one of them, me and um, Rosario Dawson and I were asked to co-host. So it was, it was written, the interviews with the experts on the suffrage movements were interviewed and all of that. And then they pieced it all together and made it a cohesive story that Rosaria and I were, were written in a way that we kind of weave it for you to understand. I really would encourage everyone to listen to it. It's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's great that the two of you are using your platform. It's so well produced. Like, God yes. bless. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Also, there's just so much to learn. I mean, honestly, it's really great. I love the idea of uh, mixing history and entertainment in podcast form because it's like you can enjoy what you're listening to while also getting information that's actually useful and can inform a lot of voters out there. Speaking of the election, by the time this podcast airs, we will know the results of the 2020 election. Um, I know you are not a soothsayer, but I'm just curious if you were to predict in this moment, knowing that when this airs, we'll know... Who do you feel like we are going to have as our next president? I honestly, I, I waffle back and forth. I have moments of there's absolutely no way he can get reelected. And then I, I'll hear, you know, uh, opening monologue where they mention polls. And I'm like, polls is what I fucked this last time. Don't tell me about polls, goddammit. You know? So I, 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 I honestly, I, I'm praying, obviously, that um, the Biden-Harris ticket saves us from this hellscape that we have entered into. But I can't, I, I, I can't predict and I almost don't want to, you know what I mean? I like, like I'm, afraid, yeah. I'm afraid no matter what I say, we're gonna, it's gonna fuck us. <laughs> I, but I, I share your uh optimism should we call it we're optimistic that something it's you know hope hope you know what what else do we have i want to talk about fashion because i'm a fashion columnist and you are such a fashion star you are a plus-size woman who loves fashion and before i ask my question i want to ask about nomenclature is there a particular term that is the most comfortable with you when talking about your body with regards to fashion Mm, plus size curvy yeah. Just want to make sure, just because I feel like people should have the autonomy to identify how they want to. So, okay, so you are a plus-size woman in fashion. What are your thoughts around how the fashion industry caters to plus-size women? They don't. <laughs> That's a funny word to use. And I ask this specifically, though, because you have to do these talk show appearances, these red carpets. You 
are in a job in which you have to have a lot of different looks on display regularly. You want to look good. You're a person who, my sense is you like fashion. You like wearing fashion. Yeah, so what's that like? It's really hard. I grew up with a mother who was a fashion, a clothes horse. She was, and not that she was like super, because my mother made a lot of her clothes. But it was always, she was always dressed to a T. The nails were always done. The shoes, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes. Like it's, at this point, it's almost like we're in hoarding, we're in a a hoarder mode and we need to talk and figure this out type of thing. To grow up and that not be an option at all for me was hard. It almost dampened my interest in clothing because because I felt like I couldn't wear nice things, I kind of just hid myself in my clothing and just wanted big stuff and that kind of thing. And then I get a job that requires red carpets. And it was the most anxiety-ridden experience for me because I was like, it's too hard. It's too hard. And I was afraid I was going to be embarrassed. My first, my very first carpet I was I wearing jeans and a, a polo shirt. And because that's what I used to wear to perform. I would wear these big polo shirts because they were crisp. You know, I get them dry cleaned. And I, you know, I felt like I looked neat in them. And this pink one, because pink is my favorite color. And I was like, this is the best I can look. And then I just, I just started trying to figure it out. My first, oh my God, my first Emmys was almost a complete disaster because I was like, what am I going to wear to the Emmys? I finally got to this place where I'm allowed to go to the Emmys. And so most of my shopping I did online because there were not a lot of places to go to get plus size stuff. So I, I would go to these UK sites and all of that. And so for the Emmys, I tried to (laughs) find a gown online and thank god thank god a uh pr company for uh, a fashion house contacted my manager and said they wanted one of their clients to dress me because i was going to order a dress from this site that turned out to be one of those you know those sites in asia where the dresses come and it's like <laughs> double size yeah <laughs> imagine me thinking one it probably wouldn't come on time anyway (laughs) (laughs) thinking I've got to go to the Emmys in some like flowy gown and it wouldn't fit my nephew you know what I mean so I just I just got lucky that I ended up in a situation where they were like, you need a stylist for this. So the stylist would help me find somebody who would find me a dress. You know what I mean? And then I, it was, was it, the, it was the third, I think it was the third Emmys. I met a dressmaker who is now kind of my clothes maker. Like I look mm. online, I see stuff that I like. I send it to her. She keeps a file of the kinds of things, looks I like. And then she makes a version for me because there's no couture for my size, you know? It's interesting, you know, because we just had this historic Vogue cover that just came out with Lizzo on the cover. She's the first plus-size Black woman to ever appear on the cover of Vogue. 
both historic and sad at the same time that we're having these firsts in 2020. But one of the interesting things and why I bring it up is because I read that she's wearing custom Valentino on the cover. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. But the more I looked into it, I was like, is she wearing custom Valentino by desire or because Valentino did not have a dress that fit her? I don't know the answer to that, but it just makes me wonder why these fashion houses, when we continue to see plus size women all over, and not just in Hollywood, everywhere. There are so many opportunities to dress, plus not just women, plus size people in general. Um, it just amazes me how much the fashion industry doesn't, refuses to bend, refuses to sort of continue to perpetuate a singular idea of beauty. And it's really disappointing. And part of, there's, there's so many things about it that are disheartening. Because I, I never looked through magazines because I had no reason. What, what am I looking at magazines for? Just to get my feelings hurt? So I was never a, a magazine girl, but because plus size bloggers became a thing, now I had something to look at. So that's my, sometimes, you know, before I watch my late night, I'll go on my other account and go through what the girls are wearing. I mean, there's, you know, it's not just plus size bloggers, but I, I go on there just to see beautiful things and and then send stuff to Jamie to put in the file because I know one day I may want to wear this look or whatever. But because there is no couture and there is no, you know, uh, high fashion or there hasn't been for a long time for plus size women, we've taken to, as I did, going online and then or go and going to fast fashion and now because that's what we're used to you know things like 11 on array pop up and it's like oh i need a dress for this baby shower i'm not paying 1500 dollars for it mm -hmm. that's you know so it's nice to have it as an option but we, it's kind of get normalized so that <laughs> Big girls can grow up to be like, okay, twice a year, I'll buy that, that special dress. Right. As opposed to, I'll never pay that much money for it. Right. Now, you mentioned the idea that you weren't reading magazines growing up. I imagine a lot of your fans, I even saw this, I read it in the comment section. When you show off some of your looks on Instagram, there are floods of comments being, from people being like, where can I get this? I want to wear this. How does it feel as someone who, as you mentioned, was not reading fashion magazines to be that figure to a lot of people today? You are the person that they are looking at and being inspired by their style. I mean, it's nice because you always want to feel, when I look good, I feel good. And then, and that's, and that's good for me. And then if somebody's like, you look good, you look, <laughs> you got damn right, bitch, you know how long this shit took? So I feel it's it's very nice. I do appreciate it. Um, it's encouraging, and you and you again. You want to make it normal, so it's not so surprising and eye opening, and you know that kind of thing. But but I also have to work really hard because again, it has to be like I have to have to do press in New York. So then we have the budget for the stylist, and then so then. Jamie's got to go downtown, you know, to, to, to the fashion district to go literally FaceTime with me and be like, these are our options for, you know, the eyelet lace you want. Which one do you like? These are our options for the chiffon uh, top that we're looking to do. Which one do you like? Like, you know, it's that kind of thing. I mean, and I, 
one, I do appreciate having one of a kind items, but sometimes I just want to shop. You know, I don't want it to be like, we only have five days to get this looks together for this thing. I want to, I want somebody to be able to bring a fucking dress rack to my house and then we just pick and it's done in a night. Right. It's like the one of a kind option should be a choice, not the only option. It's not, yeah. shouldn't be that you need to go one of a kind. One of a kind should be a special occasion in which you want to have a one of a kind yeah. dress. And it's so stressful because, you know, I, I have, I can't tell you how many times Jamie has been in my house sewing, so we sh- sewing stuff and putting it in my suitcase so I can get on a flight. Like I, I had to get to a point where, you know, I told my publicist, I was like, you got to tell the network I need the time. I need to know when stuff is so I have the time so we can put looks together because I, I get anxiety not sleeping before a flight. I'm already stressed about being on time for a flight. I don't, I don't want to be like the hem of the, the dress I'm supposed to wear on, you know, Kelly and Ryan is not sewn yet. So you actually have an interesting six degrees of separation to Sarah Michelle Gellar in that you starred in To the Bone, which was written and directed by Marty Noxon, a writer and executive producer on Buffy. You also worked with Marty on Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, which is a perfect segue into me asking, what is your proximity to Sarah Michelle Gellar by way of her work? Are you a fan of any of her films or TV shows? Where do you sort of hover within the Sarah Michelle Gellar ether? Well, first, I did Freddie. So I met Sarah at the premiere party for that show. And she, oh my and God. she said to me, she said to me, she's like, you're really funny. I'm like, thanks. Because my episode was, I think was the second or third, but they ended up using it as the premiere episode. I'm not saying I'm responsible for that. Listen. But <laughs> like I said, Sarah thought I was funny. And she was like, you were great. And I told Freddie that. <laughs> but I live tweeted Buffy. I had never watched it. I was I watched Angel in syndication, and was obsessed with it. And so um, people were like, "How have you not watched Buffy? How have you not watched Buffy?" So I I bought the box set, and I started live tweeting it, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Was shook by the quiet episode. Mm-hmm. Hush, That's- season four. That was the that was the scariest shit ever. I was like, God bless, because this ain't just camp right here. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that's that's and then I watched um I forget, oh, I can't remember the name of the show. A couple of years well it was probably Ringer. Like, yes, that was it. But that, yeah, that's all that I know. That's a lot. that's definitely a lot no I love that answer I just I so appreciate but the Freddie reference for those of you that don't know this is a Freddie Prince Jr. sitcom that came out years and years ago that was intended to be a star vehicle for him and it did not take off but it lives on in this moment I want to thank you so very much I want to encourage people to check out season four of Good Girls I want to encourage people to read your book to check out your podcast and to please follow her on Instagram it's an absolute must and for anyone that's having a down day this is an opportunity to turn your day around. Thank you so much, Retta. Thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up. Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Kraus, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.